Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 9. The Calm Before the Storm. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time we looked at the narrative, we had a mammoth episode on the First Bishops' War. The Scottish Covenanters, commanded by Lord General Alexander Leslie, trounced the royalist forces of Charles I. In the south, in the borders, the King's army backed down without a fight, which was probably for the best. They were understrength, undertrained, and poorly armed and they were facing a force superior in training, experience, discipline, and unity. The two seaborne prongs of the invasion failed, off the west coast by the Earl of Antrim, which foundered before even leaving Ireland, and the east coast commanded by the Marquess of Hamilton, who made the sensible decision not to face down the artillery defences at Leith, as well as his gun-toting mother. In the north and the northeast, the Royalists were first commanded by the Earl of Huntley, but after negotiations led to his surrender, his recently arrived son, the Viscount of Boyne, picked up the baton. His little relay race started in Aberdeen, and he managed to get about a dozen miles south to the village of Stonehaven before the Covenanters chased him back to the River Dee. What followed was one of the few moments of violence in the entire war, as the Covenanters under the Earls of Montrose and Earl Marshall fought to eject the dug-in royalist force over the Brig of Dee. After some basic deception and the poor judgement of a Boyne, the royalists were divided and the bridge stormed. Then, word came from the border. The king had come to terms with the Covenanters some days ago. That is where we left off. Before we continue, some corrections. Thank you to listener Wit Johnston and Ask Historians user Platypus Keeper for bringing some mistakes to my attention. First, the Reichsrad, which is the Swedish body I've referred to as a general assembly, is no such thing. That's the Reichsdag. The Reichsrad, or Reichsradet, is usually translated as the Council of the Realm, and is more of a privy council. Second, 
Last time I stated that the National Covenant, which Leslie had signed, was read aloud in the Reichsrat and received positively. The truth is, we only know that it was read aloud. Whether it was discussed further, and whether any members of the Reichsrat were sympathetic to the Covenanters, is not recorded. It certainly did not receive official approval, which I assumed it had, based on the wording of my source. But you know what they say about assuming. Thanks again to Wit and Platypus Keeper for making me aware of these mistakes. As always, if anyone has any corrections or feedback, please do contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or by email, podbritannica at gmail.com. Tolerating inaccuracies is a cardinal sin of history podcasts, and I must duly repent if I transgress. So, what were the terms which the King and the Covenanters had agreed? The treaty, peace, or pacification of Berwick was agreed after a week of negotiations between Charles and the leading Covenanters, Lord Roffers, Archibald Johnston, and Alexander Henderson. The Covenanters, who held the stronger position, demanded a raft of concessions from Charles. The King would ratify the decisions of the Glasgow Assembly, that the Church of Scotland would be governed by the Church at its General Assemblies, and that Scotland would be governed by the Scottish Parliament. Charles would disband his forces and return specific individuals who the Covenanters considered incendiary. Now, Charles was in a poor position, but he hadn't been defeated outright, and there was no way he would bow to all of these terms. Particularly on matters of religion, he dragged his feet, refusing to ratify the Glasgow Assembly. However, when the treaty was signed on the 19th of June, he did concede that the Kirk could govern itself. Another church assembly in Edinburgh would be held that coming August, and a Scottish Parliament later in the year. Several key fortresses were returned to the King, including Edinburgh Castle. Of course, this was only the first Bishop's War, and while it didn't yet have that name, it seems that everyone, King, Covenanters, and those in between, expected that the Peace of Berwick was destined to be temporary. It was a convenient fiction to allow both sides to pause and catch their breath. Charles's footing might have looked more obviously unstable, the poor state of his army was proof of that, but the Covenanters were only marginally more secure. They made a better show of it, and that bluff had been enough so far, but they too needed time to prepare for a second round. As stipulated in the treaty, Charles gave his assent to a general assembly of the church in Edinburgh, and this duly met in August 1639. This general assembly endorsed every element of the previous Glasgow Assembly, including the renunciation of episcopacy. This is what the Covenanters had expected, and probably so did Charles. However, the subsequent Parliament was not so simple. Charles still maintained some control over this body. The Marquis of Hamilton, now returned from his pleasure cruise of the North Sea, and thoroughly demoralised, was replaced as Charles's Scottish commissioner, by the Earl of Tracur. Tracur has appeared in our narrative many times before, and I probably pronounce his name differently every time. Hopefully I'll eventually settle on the right one. He had been a leading member of the Scottish Privy Council during personal rule, and from 1636 was serving on that body as the Lord High Treasurer. What makes Tracur particularly interesting is his consistent suspicion and hostility to the episcopacy. All the while, 
enforcing his king's religious policy. The Edinburgh riots may not have been his doing, but he likely supported them as a weapon to wield against the episcopacy in general, and the bishops on the Privy Council in particular. In the aftermath, he'd done what he could to satisfy the demands of the disaffected, demands which he sympathised with, alongside condemning their illegal actions against the authority of the crown. He also tried to make Charles see the danger in imposing the prayer book by force, and worked with Hamilton and Alexander Leslie to try and avoid violence. He intersected our narrative again when he was at Dalkeith Castle, when David Leslie, at the head of a thousand Covenant and Musketeers, rocked up to demand its surrender, complete with the royal arsenal and crown jewels. After this, he headed south to meet with the king. Finally, he returned to Scotland as the commissioner to the General Assembly and the Parliament. At the General Assembly, Traqueur played his role as expected, and assented to the abolition of the episcopacy. However, this could not become official until it was ratified by Parliament, and when that Parliament met, Traquet dragged his official feet. If you think back to our episode on Charles's homecoming, the Scottish Parliament had a number of mechanisms which gave the Crown an enormous amount of control over proceedings. Even after the last few years, many of these mechanisms were still in place. The Lords of the Articles may have lost their bishops, but it remained stacked with royalist secular lords, such as the now-freed Earl of Huntley. So, when petitions and programmes came from the gentry and the burgesses on vital questions like economics, religion, and constitutions, they didn't go anywhere. Traqueur successfully delayed the ratification of these acts for a whole seven weeks. And what happened after those seven weeks? Well, Charles fell back on an old favourite. Say it with me. He prorogued Parliament, calling for it to return only in June 1640. So, the pacification of Berwick, signed in June 1639, was effectively dead by November, and Charles had now earned himself seven more months to build the army he needed to crush the rebels. That is, if the Covenanters had calmly twiddled their thumbs for those seven months. As should not come as a surprise, they did no such thing. After all, they had experience ignoring the King's commands. The Parliament denied that Traqueur had the authority to prorogue them, as his commission had now expired. Several members remained in Edinburgh debating and drafting legislation, and in March 1640, the tables gathered in a general convention. Here, they levied the first national tax to support a Covenanter government. This was a tenth of land and commercial rents, as had been valued by the tables back in 1639. With a return to war almost certain at this point, they also reconstituted the Army of the Covenant, the bulk of which had been disbanded as per the terms of the pacification. This had two immediate benefits. Firstly, it gave employment to veterans of the former army, as well as the still-returning veterans of the Thirty Years' War. It's always good to keep your trained soldiers fed and paid, it stops them getting into trouble. Secondly, said army of trained soldiers made collecting taxes much simpler. Those unable or unwilling to contribute to this tax 
which was, after all, without royal authority, found it much simpler to make their decision when staring down the barrel of a musket, figurative or otherwise. Local government, with the backing of Parliament and the army, was expected to enforce religious conformity, ensure adequate recruitment into the military, as well as collect taxation. The General Convention then reconstituted the Fifth Table, which was the executive body of the tables, as a committee of estates, with a membership that was now permanent rather than rotating. The estates, which is how I'll refer to them from now on, stood their ground when Charles attempted to extend the prorogation of Parliament. He was having some trouble in the South, as we'll cover next week. The estates rejected his authority to do so, and Parliament duly gathered on the 2nd of June. Then they proclaimed themselves a legally constituted assembly, and deposed Trecur from his position as commissioner. The estates then went ahead with, in the words of McInnes, a constitutional revolution. The previous decisions of the tables were ratified by the new body, which then embarked on a vast spate of reforms. For starters, the clerical estate in Parliament was formally abolished, and as a reward for their support of the Covenant, the gentry had their votes in Parliament effectively doubled. The shires no longer had one composite vote, and instead the gentry shire commissioners had the same voting rights as nobility. Okay, so far this is just a rejigging of parliamentary voting. Important, of course, but hardly a revolution. But then they went further. Subscription to the National Covenant became a requirement for public office. A committee of articles could be ordered, and would be elected and responsible to the three estates. A triennial act specified that a parliament would meet every three years, whether the king summoned one or not. The Committee of Estates became a formal body, with comprehensive powers over the entire Kingdom of Scotland. Finally, the Army of the Covenant was explicitly not limited to the borders of Scotland, and so implicitly allowed the army to invade England. When the army was on campaign, half of each estate within the committee would remain in Edinburgh to govern the kingdom, while the other half accompanied the army. I'll quote McInnes here. The establishment of the Committee of Estates represented a classical, if corporate, alternative to the vesting of executive power in a monarch, who was patently untrustworthy, palpably reluctant to make concessions, and resolutely intent on reversing all constraints on the royal prerogative. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? 
stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Leslie played a key role in many of the committees established to prepare for the return of war. This included the diplomatic-focused April 1640 Committee, named after the fact. While this committee would be created, surprise, in April 1640, the diplomatic offensive of the Covenanters did not let up after the pacification. They couldn't afford to. Their military situation was, at the moment, superior or at least equal to the king. But the Stuart dynasty had significant ties to powers on the continent who could be expected to aid the king. If even one became seriously invested in aiding Charles, then the survival of the true church would be at risk. One tie was that with his uncle, Christian of Denmark-Norway. Thomas Rowe and James King travelled to Denmark in 1640 to gain support in money and men from the Danish king. We've met Rowe and King before. Rowe is the long-time ambassador who travelled to the Mughal court at Delhi, and who we met again last time when he was complaining about the Scots returning to Scotland. King is the former comrade and friend of Alexander Leslie, and one of the Scottish generals who came to the king's side in the First Bishops' War. Christian IV met with the men, and gave the royalists permission to recruit troops from his own territory. However, Charles would have to do this out of his own pocket, with money he did not have, and supply the ships necessary to take them away. It was support, in a way, but it was hardly an overwhelming show of familial loyalty. Then again, Charles had once spurned Christian's proposed mediation. The Covenanters did their best to ensure that the Danes kept their distance. In a shrewd piece of diplomatic manoeuvring, they dispatched Sir John Cochrane to Copenhagen with a letter signed by many leading Covenanters. This letter, and Cochrane, explained that the Covenanters only wanted peace with their king, and for the terms of the pacification of Berwick to be kept. The elegance of this mission was this. They asked for Christian to mediate the dispute. Not only was this a helpful piece of flattery, but it kept the Danish king from outright condemning the Covenanters, despite their rebellion against his own nephew. This diplomatic mission, combined with the goodwill generated by valuable Scottish service in the military, meant that Christian became a neutral party in the conflict, and wrote to Charles asking to mediate yet again. The other immediate familial ally was that of France. Charles was, after all, married to the French princess Henrietta Maria. But as we saw last time, the Covenanters had kept the French sweet with the supply of additional Scottish regiments in 1638, and had kept up diplomatic contact through the almoner of Cardinal Richelieu. It also has to be said that the Covenanters only needed to remind Louis XIII of the Anglo-French War to show how unreasonable his brother-in-law could be. 
Charles had hardly been a great friend to France after all. One piece of correspondence between the Covenanters and the French king was intercepted by Charles's agents in April 1639. This letter was signed by several leading Covenanters, including Alexander Leslie, the Earl of the Rothers, the Earl of Mark, the Earl of Montrose, and many others. It was a request for the French king to mediate between the Covenanters and Charles. But what really irritated Charles was that they addressed Louis as Ra, the king. Considering Charles, like all English monarchs at this point, claimed the throne of France too, this was a personal insult. As we'll see next episode, Charles deliberately misrepresented the Ra letter to the short parliament to attempt to stir up support. Those signatories he could get his hands on, namely Lord Loudon, were arrested for treason. Charles then demanded that the other signatories come before him and explain themselves. Obviously, they did no such thing. The letter may never have even made it to France, but a collection of letters did, and they were much more important. These were the results of that April 1640 committee, partly in written form, and partly presented by Reverend William Colville. This was for security, after the capture of the Ora letter aptly showed the danger of putting pen to paper. The letter to Louis only asked him to listen to Colville. The one to Cardinal Richelieu was not the same as the one to his king, and those dispatched to the Scottish diaspora present in France were themselves written with their audience in mind. The results of these overtures? As we've seen elsewhere, many Scots left French service and returned to aid the Covenanters, with an entire regiment commanded by Colonel Alexander Erskine, the brother of the Earl of Mar, seconded to aid in the Brewing War, with a promise to return him once the fighting was done. French officers, weaponry, and supplies were all shipped to Scotland, and all the while the French remained officially neutral. Despite marriage ties, Charles received little aid from his brother-in-law, and he could only look across the English Channel with suspicion at French claims of neutrality. Another such potential ally was courted by the April 1640 committee, the Netherlands. Reverend Colville, after his success in France, aimed to repeat his performance with the Dutch. The Netherlands was the current home of Elizabeth, Charles's sister, the Queen of Bohemia, and there were many advocates of the Stuart cause in the Netherlands. However, the Dutch could sympathise with the Scots. They, too, were fighting their monarchical overlords to preserve their rights and Protestant religion, and they had been for decades. It also helped that for much of this war, sometimes called the Eighty Years' War, though it overlapped with other wars including the Thirty Years' War, Scots served with distinction. As elsewhere, the reputation Scotland had earned from the service of its men in foreign wars now paid dividends. Adding into this were tangible economics. Scotland was a valuable part of Dutch trade, especially for the city of Rotterdam, and the large Scottish diaspora in the Netherlands had kept well informed about the goings-on back home, and they did what they could to counter the covenant and narrative coming off the prince, but they had little success. Colville requested the usual fare, arms and supplies for the army of the covenant, and the release of those Scots who wished to serve. He also made the ambitious proposal of a three-way confederation, 
for the Dutch States General to combine with the Scottish and English parliaments, though this went nowhere. The supplies and military aid, however, did, and Charles received reports that two dozen Dutch ships were to be dispatched flying Scottish colours to aid the Covenanters. That report overstated the number of ships, but 13 ships would eventually be sent to Scotland during the Bishops' Wars. To finish off this tour of Scottish diplomacy, we'll return to the Baltic, and to Sir John Cochrane. Unfortunately, we don't have a copy of the letters from the Covenanters to the Swedes, but we have some replies, and it's clear that Leslie made great use of his personal connections. A reply from his friend, Chancellor Uxenschirner, also gives us some idea of how early the strategies of the April 1640 committee had been worked out. Leslie had dictated his letter in February, while Cochrane had only arrived in Sweden in July. Letters were addressed to both the Chancellor and to Queen Christina, and they do not hold back. Neither did Cochrane in his address to the Reichsrat. There was no need for diplomatic niceties here. The Swedish Vasa dynasty had no familial ties with the Stuarts. Instead, Cochrane condemned the policies of Charles, comparing them to the Spanish Inquisition, and warning of the oppression which Protestant Scotland would suffer without Swedish aid. Again, the legacy of Swedish military service was an invaluable rhetorical device. For more than 60 years, Scots had served the Swedes honourably and capably. No matter that more Scottish generals were on the side of the king, this was an awkward fact best ignored. England was poised to annex Scotland, to destroy her ancient liberties and make her a province. It was passionate stuff. What did Scotland want from Sweden? Cochrane insisted they did not want money or soldiers. Scotland had enough, he said. Instead, the Covenanters needed ships, weaponry, and ammunition. He promised to return it all once the fighting was done and the Kirk was secure. Cochrane did his job well. The Reichsrat agreed to provide further aid, and not only delivered supplies to Scottish merchants in Sweden, but brazenly sent their ships to the Netherlands and to Scotland. Full to the brim with arms for the Covenanters, they ignored the Royal Navy blockade whenever they came across it. There have been two serious gaps in our coverage of Covenanter diplomacy. They are, of course, the other two Stuart kingdoms, England and Ireland. There were significant numbers of Scots resident in both kingdoms, and especially in England there were many native subjects who sympathised with the Covenanter cause, for either religious or constitutional reasons. These people were actively courted by the Covenanters, and next time we will see exactly how these efforts bore fruit. Because while the Covenanters established their constitutional revolution, events south of the border continued apace. Next time, we will return to England, where Charles has been forced, for the first time in 11 years, to call an English parliament. Before we finish off for today, I'd just like to let everyone know that as a member of the Agora Podcast Network, I'm taking part in this year's Agoraphobia, which is their spooky Halloween event. My contribution should already be out by the time you're listening to this, and you can find that on the Agora Podcast Network podcast feed. I will also leave a link to it in the description of this episode. Go have a listen. I had a lot of fun making it. It's basically a, a retelling of one of the Manx legends and or myths that I remember 
being told growing up, which you probably haven't heard before. Agoraphobia as an event will be going on throughout the month of October with every week new clips, so do subscribe to that feed. Not only agoraphobia, but some really interesting conversations and talks and specials go up on there. Just put Agora into your podcast app of choice to find the feed. Thank you to my royal favourites, Andrew Shoemaker and Mike Sanders. The Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich. The Royal Headsman, Executed Today. The Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin. The Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner. They have been joined by the Earl of Tankerville, Christopher Burton, who has been promoted from a Viscountcy. The Earl of Waldegrave, Talon Rickett. Yannick, Viscount Stiller. Owen Ryan, Viscount Carloch, and the Viscountess Rosa. Remember that you can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron gets an ad-free feed, and patrons of higher ranks get extra bonuses. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes or your favourite podcast app, or sharing it with a friend or on social media. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook, the links are in the episode description. Thank you as always to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.